Marai, the podcast, co-hosted by the Governance Program at the Aga Khan University and the International Society for Islamic Legal Studies in cooperation with the University of Bern. Hi, everybody. My name is Serena Tolino. And my name is Gianluca Parolin. We are very pleased to have in this episode as our guest, Perry Behrman, who is currently the editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Oriental Society. Welcome, Perry. Thank you. So, Perry, we know you have been uh, one of the founding members of the International Society for Islamic Legal Studies. So um, maybe our first question would be, why did you thought that the society was necessary and when was it founded? Well, the society actually came about when I set up the journal Islamic Law and Society for Brill, uh, which was then E.J. Brill, in 1992. And in order to fill, to make sure that the first year would be filled, Islamic law was a very small discipline then. I don't know if you know that, but um, there was not much appearing on Islamic law, and there was one other journal, I think, um, that was active. So we were concerned that the jour- it might be hard to get submission to the journal. And we set up the, this conference in Leiden and Amsterdam with... Um, The hosts then were the two people working on Islamic law, Ruth Peters in Amsterdam and Leon Buskens in um, Leiden. And we had a massive showing. It was the best conference ever. It was called the Joseph Schacht Conference on Practice and Theory, or Theory and Practice, something like that, in 1994. So the idea was then that it would appear, it would come around every three years because, as I said, there weren't, there weren't that many working on law, and um, that was felt a good time between conferences. The idea was that each conference would be called by a well-known uh, scholar of Islamic law from that country. Uh, the next one was held in Granada in 1997, and... Um, Immediately, that idea about the name fell away. So that was just the second conference. And after the third conference, which I put on at Harvard in 2000 on the Methab, I thought, you know, it's only a small group of people thinking about what we should do and, and where we should hold it and organizing all this stuff. And we should actually make it into a society, make it more professional, um, less insular. And since I was in Massachusetts and at Harvard at the time, I set it up as a nonprofit in Massachusetts in 2003 or four, I think. It's interesting that the history of the society is so tied up with the conferences, also because the, our idea for the Shara'i, the podcast, is precisely to prepare to the 10th triennial conference of ISIL. So we're very excited to, you know, to explore the origins of the society with you in light of the upcoming uh, conference in 2022. So thank you for this. I wonder if you could tell us something about the group of scholars who were involved uh, at the beginning. Well, um, as I said, 
it was me and um I organized the conference in my hometown at that point in Leiden. And so the people around me in Holland, Ruth Peters and Ruth Peters mostly was involved, has been involved from the very beginning and has shown up at all the conferences. The first conference was a big success. Uh, we had everybody from Wild Halak to Huo Yangbo or Gokye Yangbo, uh, who just, by the way, had an enormous fight at the conference. The conferences have never been as interesting as then. Um, and Frank Vogel came, um, David Powers came, everybody came. And, um, of course, when I went to Harvard in 1999, I worked very closely with Frank Vogel. And so he was also one of the most important people behind. And, um, so I would say Ruth Peters and, uh, Frank Vogel were, uh, very important in, in our thinking about all this. But thinking about the conference uh, locations now, because uh, the next one will be in London, um, and you mentioned that two were in Harvard, but you mentioned that the second one was in Granada. So I was um, thinking, who was then organizing it in Spain? Because I assume you must have also members active already then in the group who were based in Spain, right? Right. Maribel Fierro uh, organized that one, as far as I know, with her Spanish colleagues. And... Um, That was just an amazing conference. It was on judges and judgeship, which eventually came out as a book. Of course, not the proceedings as such, but the idea, as did the Madhab book, um, proceed from the conference. But um, Granada is probably one of the best places to hold a conference in. Our conferences have always been very European in style because they belong, they started there which means that you have little field trips. Uh, American conferences are all in the hotel, you know, in the conference center or whatever. But uh, the Europeans like to spread it out. And so you have field trips here and lunches there. And, and Granada was particularly exciting. For the first one, in, we held it in Leiden, but we had one day in Amsterdam where, um, you know, we changed venue and we walked around the city and we had dinners and so it was uh these types of things are great the last one was in both in helsinki and tampere so we followed exactly. the same yeah. pattern <laughs> <laughs> yeah and the very unfortunate you know we've always we have spread to uh, ankara where we had a fantastic conference as well but um before that in 2009 we had hoped to go to india And we had, it was actually completely planned to go to uh, Mumbai. Um, we had Indian, Indian host. Uh, we carefully kept the Indian government out of it, quite a negotiation process. And three weeks, I think it was three weeks, if not four weeks before the conference was to be held in December, the horrific bomb went off uh, at the hotel. And so they Everybody was worried and they canceled actually. Um, but we were, you know, we were unsure about what to do, but in that instance. So then Rob Grieve, who has also been very important, I'm not sure, uh, right from the beginning because he's, of course, considerably younger than the rest of us, but he has become, um, a very strong force in the, in the entire society. 
he organized it um, on very short notice, getting the monies together, which he is very good at, uh, in Exeter that year. And so that was a very a great conference on custom, which unfortunately would have been held in Mumbai. You mentioned a couple of uh, of themes of conferences now. You mentioned one on judges, uh, one on custom, and so on. Um, and this was how conferences were organized before, right? There was always like a general topic for the conference. Right. When I became president in, um, well, I'm not sure when it was, but I, I had to organize the ninth conference, which was held in Helsinki, as uh, Gianluca said. Um, I felt that we should try a different tack. And so um, I initiated, you know, imposing it on my board, which is called consulting with the board. Um, the idea of having a special theme, which was then presented by invited speakers and to open up the conference to everybody, as you know, for the rest of the conference. I just felt that the, the conference theme was restricting attendance. And I think it was a big success. And I was very pleased to see that you continued it for the 10th because, um, There's so much going on in law now, and to restrict it to one chosen theme is um, is unnecessarily limiting, I think. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that um, the London conference coming up will also uh, show that that's a, a good format for the conferences in the future. I wonder if it's also uh, worthwhile reflecting on the positioning of legal studies within the other disciplines that work um, on the region. And that's probably a way of uh, framing that in a sense that, you know, we're, um, we're discussing with different disciplines and within our own disciplines. So we're in, in constant negotiations. So I wonder if the, if that was ever, you know, a force behind, you know, deciding to form a society and how to take this forward in a sense. Um, it never was. Again, the society was almost literally done by me because I felt that it shouldn't be this small little group of three, four people uh, deciding everything. Um, that's just the way I operate. And so I can't honestly say that there was any discussion. We didn't become a society until it was set up. So, um, and after that, People are, as you know, very happy to just fall in line. And I, there may have been some uh, disapproval or unhappiness, but I certainly didn't hear any of it. You know, those people just kind of fall away, I guess. I can't say that. We obviously talked about uh, once, we, once the boards were set up and the, the conference, as you know, is decided by the board and the conference theme and things like that. So it's all very... It's not a hugely uh, democratic way of working. The entire membership is not involved. And I think that would be <laughs> rather difficult. Instead of triennial, we'd have, you know, whatever, every 12 years or something before we came to a decision. But um, law, of course, does cover all these different fields. And you have anthropological perspectives on law and historical and... Um, sociological. But I think most of us in the beginning were 
working with the real cla- more classical law. Ruth Peters, of course, works with classical law, but in a in a uh, in a later period. But um, so there was very little treatment of until we came to the custom conference. Um, there was very little treatment of any discipline outside, I think. Uh, and there was so much to cover because, as I said, law really blossomed and bloomed much later than than uh, this, the journal and these conferences. And, you know, my hope is that the journal and these conferences uh, were a bit of a catalyst. You already touched a bit on that when you spoke about the topics that became maybe um, relevant for the, for the society, but what kind of changes have you seen in the society? And I mean, uh, in both senses, in the sense of uh, members of the society, um, did something change on locations where people are working on Islamic law and also in the topics that became maybe more relevant and the disciplines? Well, a lot of changes have been, you know, you get you get a lot of people falling away, which I understand now, um, because at some point, one's year is just too busy with everything, and going to conferences becomes less of a um, pleasure, I guess. But um, so, you know, there's a lot of influx of new people whom, whom uh, you don't know, and young people, which is good, but it changes the, the feel of a conference sometimes. So though it, it's important to, to try and bring those people to stay as members, and that's um, something that I think the society should work on, that they should perhaps reach out more to those who came and then fell away. Um, I'm not talk- and I'm talking about the younger group because those are the ones who are going to have to um, continue it going forward. But um, as far as themes are concerned, um, I, have, I like the theme that the London Conference came up with. Many themes that were batted about, in my time anyway, had to do with modern, um, modern issues. And the, the concern was then is that not everybody works on them. Most, many people that we knew work on older, and they would be completely left out. Many of the members who were in the beginning did not work on modern law and do not work on aspects of any aspects of contemporary, uh, the contemporary situation. So, but that has changed. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's good to cover that as you have done, because that's become for many people, many Muslims, particularly who live outside of Muslim countries, a real aspect that they need to work with and maneuver within. So I think it's good to open up the field to new people and newer ideas instead of where I think we started from, which was the typical Islamic legal talk, you know, legal history. Where should we be heading? (laughs) I'm not the right person to ask that. Why not? (laughs) Um, Well, because, you know, there are much better people um, who are really seriously working on Islamic legal studies that can answer that question better. Um, I do feel, but I'm not sure if the logistics and the finances are there, that the society, in order to become or to continue to be, or maybe to become is better, uh, much more relevant to many people, it should... Uh, begin producing more 
it was set up for these conferences, as you rightly pointed out, and it has stayed that way. And it may be time in the, with the 10th conference to change not the con- conference anymore as such, although that could always happen later, but to talk about the society and what can happen. There have been talks as in that the members would be much more diligent about consulting through the website on their papers, draft papers, things like this, getting much more discussion going in the cyber sphere. That didn't happen. Um, I'm not sure that happens a lot um, generally, but um, there are possibilities uh, that the society can um, support that would bring the members into a more viable and lively community, I think. Of course, finances are always an issue. And as you know, putting the conferences on is a financial issue more and more. But um, there, there are possible things that, that can be done. Breakaway groups that can then later report um, through the website on particular subjects. I mean, now with the internet and, and especially with this last pandemic year, we've seen how much can be done online. So that's a real opening, I think. You know, Zoom everybody Zooms. (laughs) So you can meet on Zoom, you can discuss on Zoom. And so the the society could set up little groups if there's willingness that could do something that then report back, things like this. Um, Just an idea. I have a last question on uh, on your research. So you, I know that you just delivered the manuscript and you are working on a new one. So maybe could you tell us something about both of them? Well, the one I just submitted was one I've been working on for many, many years. It's a an annotated translation of um, a 10th century text, Bustan al-Arafin by Abu Layth Samarqandi. And... Um, it's a large text, at least I think it's large. And um, what I've done is translated it and provided with commentary. It, it's a, the text itself is, a, I feel, like a manual. Um, and so I, my work I made also into a manual. And I'm hoping that it will introduce aspects of Islamic law to the non uninitiated. Um, It doesn't treat all, you know, it's mostly ritual rather than, say, penal or uh, other law. But it provides a fascinating look into what was important in the 10th century, what continues to be important today. And the text, which is made up of 159 questions, and answers, those questions can still be found on the web today. Muslims are still asking the same types of questions and getting the same types of answers. So it's no surprise that this particular text is and has been extremely popular all over the world. And that one, um, so I quote unquote finished it, but of course it will need revision. And the next one I'm starting on is uh, that has, doesn't have anything to do with law as such. It's um, the 50-year correspondence between de Goeie in Leiden and his good friend Nuldeke in Tübingen. And they met when in their very early 20s in Leiden when both were working on their doctorates and started um, and a, a grand 
friendship flourished, and they wrote letters for 50 years until Duhuya died in 1909. Um, and that those 50 years of correspondence is in the Leiden University Library. So the letters have been transcribed by um, Danielle van der Zande, whose work on Houtsma, it's getting a little complicated here, who was the first editor of the Encyclopedia of Islam, van der Zande wrote his dissertation on Houtsma and included a chapter on his work on the encyclopedia. And of course, I wrote a book on the history of the Encyclopedia of Islam and used uh, van der Zande's dissertation. Um, and we became friends, um, epistolary friends. We haven't met yet. And he very kindly shared with me his transcription of these letters between de Huyer, who uh, was a very important founder of the Encyclopedia of Islam, and um, Nildika. And so when we got talking, he said he couldn't do anything more with them. And uh, I offered to um, annotate them and put them out. And I've been told by a number of uh, colleagues that they need to be translated because de Huyer wrote in uh, Dutch and Nildika wrote in German. Um, Nuldeke knew Dutch, learned Dutch from his two years in Leiden at that time. So uh, people who read German nowadays is dwindling, and people who read Dutch uh, is practically non-existent. So I'm going to be translating and annotating, commenting on these letters, which is a fascinating 50 years of early Islamic study. And it's a large project, but um, I'm looking forward to that. So translation is still strongly at the heart of uh, Islamic legal studies in a way. It is, it is, and whether as, from whatever language. <laughs> yeah. And as some say, there is no understanding until you translate. <laughs> That's where you actually test your understanding. That's very true. And I, I'd like to point something out that I find interesting is that, um, you know, the Encyclopedia of Islam, the entries are, the lemma are, lemata are, you are given in Arabic. So you'll have madhab um, or whatever. And, and you know from reading um, everybody's papers that they just use the Arabic term. So I'm a big stickler for allowing other people outside of um, the very small field to understand what we're writing about. And with JOS and, and other things, I always insist that there's a, that the English is used or it's very well defined. And when I started, uh, set up the Encyclopedia of the Quran, um, I made it a point with the board I had chosen that the entry should be in English. Uh, and there was quite a bit of discussion about this because, you know, people were, were discomforted by the idea of, for example, taqwa or whatever, how can you define that and things like that. I said, well, the Encyclopedia of the Quran, if anything, is going to be read by a comparative disciplinary audience, and we can't just use Arabic. So luckily they agreed, and that's how it was done. And I think that's what we need to do, is we need to translate, as you say, because only when you translate do you realize that um, the word has so many you know, you need to really work on that, those words. You need to understand them yourself, which hopefully we do, and then be able to articulate them in another language, and that's not easy. And so 
if you ever see a paper that uh, is riddled with Arabic or Persian terms, um, throw it to the side in disgust. <laughs> Having said that, as Umberto Eco reminds us, the translator is a traitor. So <laughs> <laughs> there's no way out of that. <laughs> well, I wish we all could read everybody's language. It's soon, you know, in 50 years, maybe... English will be the only language on earth, and then uh, we won't have that problem. I don't know. Well, we will still need to it's... translate from er from earlier English, so we, we cannot do away with translation. <laughs> <laughs> Especially legal translation, because institutions change. Yeah. yeah. Well, and um, yeah, and understanding of terms change, you know, you're right. What one word meant 40 years ago no longer means that. So, yeah, thank you very much, Perry, for having been with us today. And we hope to see you in London at the next conference. Thank you for the opportunity. And I look forward to that. Thank you, Perry. Bye.